tears coming to my eyes, one of the things I missed the most was hearing y'all's voices singing together. Our scripture passage this morning is John chapter 19, verse 38 through chapter 20, verse 9. It can be found in your pew Bibles on page 1,685. I haven't said that in a while. Found in your pew Bible on page 100. I was worried I was going to forget it, so I was like, make sure you say that. Page 1,685. John chapter 19, verse 38. Hear now the reading of God's holy, inspired, and infallible word. Later... Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jews. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices and strips of linen, this was in accordance with Jewish burial customs. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid, because it was the Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter, who was behind him, arrived and went into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. The cloth was folded up by itself, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. As far as the reading of God's holy word, may he bless it to the hands, hearts, and minds of his people. We pray with me. Heavenly Father, accompany the preaching of your word. By your spirit, may it bring us the grace of Jesus Christ, our Savior. In his name we pray. Amen. Clarence W. Hall once said, The resurrection of Jesus changes the face of death for all his people. Death is no longer a prison, but a passage into God's presence. Easter says, You can put truth in a grave. But it won't stay there. You can nail it to a cross, wrap it in winding sheets, and shut it up in a tomb, but it will rise. I think it's interesting. I feel like we have been in a, a state of humiliation all these months, sort of like an exile. And here we are back in church together, talking about the resurrection. You see, the empty grave is the turning point of all history, the discovery that far exceeds all other great discoveries. 
It is the final resting place of all the hopes and promises God has given to us, his people, in Jesus Christ. That's why I want us to go away from this sermon this morning understanding one thing, and that is that our risen Savior has raised us to new life. Our our risen Savior has raised us to new life. We're going to look at three points this morning. The first is that he really died. The second is that he really rose again. And the third is that he really gives new life. He really died. He really rose again. He really gives new life. So let's look at that first point. He really died. Starting in verse 38. We hear about these two men, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. You see, uh, death has a way of changing people. Making them do things that maybe before they would not have done. And two important notes to be made about Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus is that they were among the Jews, capital J, a group of people which John and his gospel have long said is against Jesus. The hierarchy that's opposed to him, that's desiring to bring Jesus down, that led Jesus to cross. We read, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, because he feared the Jews. Now, I don't know about you, but I find that contrast funny, because in our day and age, with our understanding of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, if anyone were to say, you know, I'm a follower of Jesus, but Don't tell anyone. It's an oxymoron. It's ironic. There's no such thing as a secret follower of Jesus. Jesus' ministry was public. It was out in the open. What is it that we do when we come of age here in our church and we stand before the congregation? What do we do? We make a profession of faith. Now imagine if that profession of faith became a secret society where nobody was allowed to come and only that person came in and said I will follow Jesus it doesn't make sense right but here is this rich man Joseph of Arimathea he's a follower of Jesus but secretly because mm, he feared men more than he feared God nonetheless upon Jesus' death His secrecy is thrown out the window. He becomes someone who is so emboldened by what Christ meant to him that he goes to Pilate himself and he asks Pilate, Pilate, can we have the body of Jesus? You see, Jesus, he's a criminal now. Jesus is a man who does not deserve a proper burial or a grave. He deserves to be thrown into that plot of land that was for the lowest of the low. A potter's field. And that's where those bodies were going. Joseph of Arimathea, he interrupts and he says, can we have his body? And he was accompanied by somebody we might all remember. All the way back in John chapter 3. In fact, 
It's pretty striking that I think John, the gospel writer, wants us to think of that moment because he says he was accompanied by Nicodemus, you know, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Now, what is he saying there? He's saying, just like Joseph, who was a follower of Jesus in secret, here is Nicodemus. And remember, Nicodemus didn't come visit Jesus in broad daylight out where everyone could see him. He's a Pharisee. He cannot be seen publicly with this man and all the controversy around him. And so in order to maintain his image, he follow and he comes and he visits Jesus at night. But here is Nicodemus. Nicodemus who brought Brought myrrh and aloes, 75 pounds. This is a burial that's meant for a person of significance, of importance. One who should receive the honor rather than dishonor. It's quite a contrast, his body being pulled down from the cross to this display of great honor. Calvin says of these men, we have a striking proof that his death was more quickening than his life, and so great was the efficacy of that sweet savor which the death of Christ conveyed to the minds of these two men, that it quickly extinguished all the passions that belonged to the flesh. So long as ambition and the love of money reigned in them, the grace of Christ had no charge for them. But now they begin to disrelish the whole world. Joseph of Arimathea says, I don't care if people know if I'm a follower of Jesus. He does not deserve to be buried in a potter's field with criminals. Nicodemus says, I don't care if people amongst the Pharisees and the Sadducees know that I'm a follower of Jesus. He deserves to be honored with this great display of of money that I'm going to spend on him with all these aloes and, and, uh, and ointments. But we're told more, right, about this. Jesus' body is taken. They wrap it with the spices, strips of linen, in accordance with Jewish burial customs. And we're told about this garden that was nearby where Jesus was crucified. And there was a tomb which had no long, no, no, never been used before. And they put him in that tomb. And because it was the Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, that's where they laid Jesus. And we're told in great detail about Jesus' burial for four reasons. The first is that this detail answers objections that came later that Jesus never rose from the dead. And the objections are pretty easy because they're the same today. Uh, he never really died on the cross. He uh, fainted and then was revived later. Or that he died, but his body was taken away by his followers in order to spread the rumor that he'd been raised from the dead. The second reason is, this is to cause us to think of what Isaiah said of the Messiah. Verse 9 of Isaiah 53 says, They made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. The third is, this is intended to support and strengthen our faith. 
preacher Charles Simeon says, if he did not die, he's made no atonement for sins. And if he did not rise again, we have no evidence that his atonement has been accepted on our behalf. We think of the words of Paul, if Christ did not die and he was not raised, then we of all people are to be pitied. We are still in our sins. The penalty of sin, though, was paid by Christ's death. And so if he did not really die, then our sins have not been forgiven. And fourth, it testifies to us that death is not the end. Death could not hold Jesus. So his death gives way to hope, the hope of eternal life, which is ours in him. The empty tomb calls lost people to the foot of the cross to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, that they too might be saved and have everlasting life. So the question we're presented with at the burial of Jesus, at his lowly but yet honorable funeral service here in this moment, is do we believe that he died? Do we believe he died for our sins? Do we know that we can be forgiven? He really died, but thank goodness that's not where the story ends. That's not the end. He also really rose again. The next seven verses tell us about this. Early on the first day of the week, while it was dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb, saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They've taken the Lord out of the tomb. We don't know where they have put him. And so in this uh, account that John gives us, Mary Magdalene, and you look at the other gospel accounts, another, another number of women went to, to finish the preparation of Jesus' body since they had to quickly put him in the tomb because it was the preparation day before the Sabbath when no work could be done. So they come and they find that the tomb is empty, the stone is rolled away, and Mary, she runs back and she tells the disciples, they've taken his body, she thinks that they've taken his body away. And she, didn't, she had no recollection or no idea about what had really happened at this point. And so Peter and the other disciple start running for the tomb. And I like verse 4 because if you realize that the disciple whom Jesus loved is John, both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Well, you're younger, John, okay? You're the youngest disciple. Give Peter a break, all right? But as he got there, he bent over and he looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but he didn't have the courage to go into the tomb. And Simon Peter, who's behind him, arrived and he went into the tomb. And, and we're, we're told these things that don't really make sense to us on the surface, why are we being told that the strips of linen are lying there? Why are we being told that the burial cloth around Jesus' head was folded up by itself and it was separate from the linen? Why are we being told all these details? Well, the detail given here is so that we will not be duped into believing that the resurrection is some poetic and metaphorical empty tomb 
that we're to believe in all of our resurrections, but is actually a true historical event with great spiritual and physical significance. You see, if you look at the other gospel accounts, there have been little r resurrections in the gospels. The raising of Lazarus, Jairus' daughter. But they were all only the temporary reversal of the victory of the grave. This moment was, as Keddie says in his commentary, the brilliant permanence of the victory of life. And for a world of lost and dying people, the harbinger of things to come and glory yet to be revealed. Because of this, it's interesting to note that John in his gospel does not mention the moving stone. Does not mention the flight of the soldiers. And even at this moment says nothing of the appearance of angels. He's content to speak, to speak alone of the discovery of a tomb which is empty. They go and they run to look for themselves. And what, what details are we told and why are they significant? This detail about bending over to look in at the strips of linen lying there, but not going in. Simon Peter rushing into the tomb, seeing the strips of linen lying there, as well as the burial cloth around Jesus' head. The cloth was folded up by itself, separate from the linen. Why all these specific details? It's almost like it's painting a picture of a crime scene for us. Because it gives us a vibrant authenticity to what John is describing. He was really there. This is an eyewitness account. It also shows us how Jesus' own predictions were fulfilled. Earlier in the Gospel of John, he said his body was the temple that would be destroyed and three days later be raised again. He said the only sign that this unfaithful generation would receive would be the sign of Jonah where he would be in the belly of the earth for three days. He told his disciples they were going to Jerusalem where he would suffer, die, and on the third day rise again. All these words were validated when the tomb was discovered empty by John and Peter. And the reason why we're told that the linen cloth is there and the burial, of, the burial cloth for Jesus' head was folded up separate from the linen itself. All these pieces were theirs because if they had taken the body, what the body had been wrapped in would not be in the tomb. These are almost left behind by Jesus to say, what covered my death is no longer necessary. Christ was the prophet God had promised. And third, why we're told this in great detail is because it helps us begin to think of the connection of facts and faith as we as followers wrestle with what the empty tomb means. And we see this connection begin to unravel and Peter and John's response in the next verses. Eight and nine. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. And they still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. So he really died. He really rose again. 
but he also really gives new life. We're told in Luke's gospel that Peter went away from this empty tomb encounter marveling to himself what had happened. But here John tells us of himself that he saw and believed. Now some look at this verse and, and say that what John saw and believed was what Mary had said. That the tomb was empty and that they had taken Jesus' body. He believed her account. But the combination of the words saw and believe in John's gospel carry with it a strong theological meaning connected to an expression of true faith. He saw and believed. Now this wasn't a settled faith. Remember, we're, we're pondering the connection between facts and faith, right? But more, this is a puzzlement for John. To realize that as he's sitting there, he's looking at this empty tomb, he's looking at the linen cloth, the burial cloth laying there, that he's realizing Jesus was alive and wrestling with what that fully meant. I mean, isn't it interesting to read the words he saw and believed, and then the next words, they still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Hutchinson says, It is our great fault in the fruit of much ignorance, peevishness, and averseness from the way of faith that plain scriptures, which might comfort us, lie beside us unobserved or not believed and trusted. I mean, right before they went to Jerusalem, Jesus said, The Son of Man is going to Jerusalem where he must suffer, die, and on the third day rise again. In fact, the Pharisees themselves in Luke's gospel come to Pilate and say, can we have soldiers set up at the tomb, at the burial place? And Pilate's like, why? Well, because while he was alive, he kept saying that he would rise from the dead three days later. The Pharisees knew it. But that's what Jesus had said. They just didn't believe it would actually happen. Jesus has not made his resurrection a secret. He has spoken openly about it. And here these two men who stood by his side for a number of years are looking at an empty tomb. And in their mind they're saying, Jesus is alive? But what does that even mean? And we are so like them, aren't we? It's so easy to look at Peter and John and to criticize them and, and to think to themselves, I mean, how many Easter Sundays have we been to? We know all about the resurrection. We know all about its truth and its meaning and its significance. And so because we're people who know the story, we get into this moment. We get into this captured moment, and we think to ourselves, Peter, John, you're such idiots. How many times, how many times do we allow ourselves to remain ignorant? When the scriptures, which might comfort us, 
lie beside us unobserved, not believed, or trusted. We say to the Lord, Lord, help me. Show me what I need to do. Guide me. All this stays close. We need the Spirit. And so do John and Peter. They need the Spirit to connect those facts to their faith, to bring to their minds the understanding of God's Word that they needed. John, probably here commenting on his own youthful ignorance, he saw and believed he didn't really fully understand. Even though they didn't really understand it yet, Peter and John had stumbled upon, you could say, even ran into the very heart of the gospel. That our Savior must rise again from the dead. One pastor said that the resurrection of Jesus is to Christianity what the soul is to the body. What the foundation is to the building what the keystone is to the arch. Keddie in his commentary states, the life of the risen Jesus is the only proof that the death of the crucified Jesus was enough to cancel sin and conquer death and hell. Without the empty tomb, Christ just died a criminal's death. And one of the most significant realities about the resurrection that if Christ's death shows us that our sins can be forgiven the resurrection shows us that our suffering is not pointless if the suffering of Jesus Christ led to his Exaltation, his resurrection, his entrance into the fullness of life. Then what are the implications that has for us the suffering that we experience and that we go through on this path of the cross? It's not pointless. Humility comes before honor. The discovery of the empty tomb was unbeknownst to these two disciples who were still struggling with the ignorance that they have. It was the beginning of a new creation. The first day of the week was the eighth day, the resurrection day, the day of new creation. And we forever commemorate that by our worship on the Lord's Day. And because Christ was the first fruits of a new creation, we can believe that we are new creatures by faith in Him. The old is gone, the new has come. The empty tomb calls us to the heart of the gospel, the light of the world, the risen Savior, Jesus Christ Himself. The empty tomb calls us to the realization that our sins have been forgiven and Jesus Christ and his death 
And that not only in him can we be forgiven and justified, but we also are raised to new life. Our risen Savior has raised us to new life. Easter says you can put truth in a grave, but it won't stay there. You can nail it to a cross, wrap it in winding sheets, and shut it up in a tomb. But it will rise. He is risen. He is risen indeed. May we rise with him. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word. We pray that you would have enlightened it to us by your spirit, that we may come to know the significance of Christ and his death and his resurrection in our lives. We pray, Lord, you would help us to see how we are forgiven in Jesus Christ and how we are growing in godliness and holiness because of his resurrection. The power that is at work in us is the same power that raised him from the grave. Thank you for your grace, for your love, for your mercy, for your righteousness, for your justice. May we always put our trust and our hope and our only comfort in this life, Jesus Christ, our Savior. It's in his name we pray. Amen.